Well, good morning, everybody. It is wonderful to see you here today at the Vista. If we haven't met before, my name's Austin. I get to serve here as one of our lead pastors. If you're joining us for the first time, first time in a long time, maybe it's your first time at church ever, you showed up for baptism today to see somebody. Man, we are so glad that you joined us, and we hope that you feel loved and welcomed and wanted, that you fit right in and make yourself at home here today at the Vista. Now, we are in the third week of our series, a series called You Are Not Your Own, a series where we're trying to better understand and unravel this very tangled relationship between identity and authority and freedom and belonging that is in many ways the defining issue of our current cultural moment. And if I were to put the issue in its simplest form, it might be in the form of a question, something like, who am I? philosopher Derek Zoolander once put it, or perhaps a little bit more specifically, like who gets to decide who I am? You know what I mean? Like, do I, do you get a vote? My mommy, does God? And if you're here today, you know, chances are you you believe that God certainly has some say in deciding who you are, but the devil's really in the details, isn't he? Because even if you believe that God gets to decide who you are, how do you go about interpreting who God has said you are? Like, is it by reading the Bible and interpreting it according to you? Or is it by listening to somebody else read the Bible and interpret it according to them? Is it by listening to the Holy Spirit according to you? Or listening to the Holy Spirit according to someone else? Or... Is it by taking the Enneagram, Myers-Briggs, Clifton, Strengths, Disc, Berkman, Hexaco, Caliper, Big Five, or which Hogwarts house are you in personality test? You know what I mean? I've actually created my own. I thought we needed another one. Would you like to take it real quick? It's very simple. It's much simpler than those other ones. It's just one question. Here's the question. Do you like coffee? Yeah. No? All right. We got a yes and no's. Yes, then you're probably good. No, you're probably a psycho. Don't need all these numbers, INF, blah, 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 blah. No, just do you like coffee? So you get it. There's a lot of confusion nowadays about who we are and who gets to decide who we are. And rather than this being something to freak out about, I actually think it presents a really wonderful opportunity for us to remind ourselves of the good news of the gospel. The good news that we are not our own. But first we got to start with a, a rather depressing observation. I'm sorry, it will pick up from here, but we gotta start low. So there's been a lot of opining in recent years about the rapid decline of faith in the modern, western, slash mainly America and European world. And basically, uh, yeah, faith is declining at a pretty astonishing rate in the modern world. There are all sorts of charts and graphs that we could look at to help document this decline. So for example, Here's a graph that documents Americans' religious affiliation and attendance at worship services over the years. And so you see that about 50 years ago, well over 90% of Americans said that they belonged to some, you know, religious community and they regularly went to services, whatever they were. But 50 years later, now about 40% of Americans say they never attend religious services, do not belong to a religious community in any way, shape, or form. Perhaps more telling here is a generational graph of religious affiliation. Um, And what you will see is that millennials here, so any millennial, 1980 through 1994, birthdays, millennials in the house, there are a few of us. Well, we, my friends, we are the least religious generation in American history. 
one of the least religious generations in world history and the very first generations of Americans where there is an even split between people who would say they're Christian and people who would say they are religiously unaffiliated. We did it, guys. Some have called this phenomenon the great de-churching. And a recent book by that name summarizes all of this pretty well. Here's what the authors say. In the U.S., we are currently experiencing the largest and fastest religious shift in the history of our country as tens of millions of formerly Christian worshipers have decided that they no longer desire to attend church at all. Forty million people have left the church in the last 25 years, which is more than all the new people who became Christians from the First Great Awakening, Second Great Awakening, and the Billy Graham Crusades combined. Kind of astonishing, isn't it? And of course, the million-dollar question is, is why? Why is faith declining at such a rapid rate in the modern world? And the answers usually given are things like you know, science or secularism or the sexual revolution and all those things have certainly played some sort of role. But I was recently reading a book that I highly recommend. It's called Generations by uh, social psychologist Jean Twenge. Our elders are going to read through this. Um, and in it, she's documenting these key generational differences that mark America's major generations right now. And I want you to listen to her take on why faith is declining at such a rapid rate, especially among younger generations, among millennials, Gen Z. Here's what she says. Why is religion less popular with millennials? Well, in short, because it's not compatible with individualism. And individualism is millennials' core value above all else. Individualism promotes focusing on the self and finding your own way. And religion, by definition, promotes focusing on things larger than the self and following certain rules. Now, before we get too hard on, you know, young people these days for leaving the faith, I think we need to at least acknowledge that there are some cascading generational consequences at play here, right? Like these kids just woke up out of nowhere and decided they weren't going to be in church anymore. Reminds me of this satirical article that the Babylon Bee wrote a few years ago, a title of which was, After 12 years of quarterly church attendance, parents shocked by daughter's lack of faith. The article reads, Local father Trevor Mickelson, 48, and his wife Carrie are reeling after discovering that after 12 years of steadily taking their daughter to church every Sunday, they didn't have a more pressing sporting commitment. She no longer demonstrates the strong quarterly commitment to the faith that they raised her with. Trevor was simply stunned at the revelation. I just don't understand it. Almost every single time there was a rained out game or a break between school and club team seasons, we had her in church. I just don't get where her spiritual apathy is coming from. I can't tell you how often we prayed the prayer of Jabez on the way to a game, added her mother. You know, the more I think about it, the more this illustrates how the church just keeps failing this generation, lamented Trevor. The Mickelsons further noted plans to have a chat with the pastor of their church and their younger, after their younger son Robert's soccer season calms down a little bit. Those with ears to hear, let them hear. And now back to Jean Twingy's quote. According to her reading of the data, the primary cause of the decline of faith in the modern world, it is not science, it's not secularism, it's not the sexual revolution, but rather it's individualism. Because according to the data, when individualism rises, faith falls. Which is one of the greatest threats to Christianity in the modern world, y'all. It's not out there. Oh, the greatest threat to Christianity in the modern world is me. And it's you. And it's our belief that we are our own. And I sure don't like that suggestion very much. 
I'd rather blame it on Obama or Donald. But I think she's probably right. I do. Mostly because I think it's really clear that Jesus agrees with her. And so if you have your Bibles, grab them. We're going to be in Matthew 16, verses 21 through 26. First book in the New Testament there. It'll be on the screen for you as well if you would like to read along this iconic teaching on discipleship from Jesus. Matthew 16, 21 through 26. Now from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and then be raised up on the third day. Now Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. So great. Saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Then he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. You're not setting your mind on God's interest, but on man's. And then Jesus gathered his disciples around and said to him, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Because whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake is going to find it. For what will it profit a man or a woman if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? Matthew 16, 21 through 26. So here in Matthew 16, you probably picked up on it. It's, it's a pretty tough text where Jesus gets down to business because things are about to get pretty serious. It's been wonderful so far. You know, he's performed the miracles. He has wowed and wooed the crowds, and the disciples have loved being part of this whole thing, but they're not going to love what's about to happen because what's about to happen is he's going to go to Jerusalem where he will be betrayed and murdered. Uh, Jesus doesn't completely connect the dots for the disciples for what this will mean for them, but let's give them, you know, the assumption that they could probably infer that Jesus' betrayal and murder probably meant they would not be enjoying a leisure trip to Jerusalem. You know what I mean? It wasn't going to be like brunch at the domain for him. And while I suspect that none of the disciples liked this very much, Peter takes it upon himself to play the role of Jesus's accountability partner and PR consultant. And so he takes Jesus aside and he rebukes him. Peter rebukes Jesus. I think we've all met people like this who have this sort of just irrational confidence in themselves. You ever met somebody like that? People whose parents just loved them like a little bit too much. You can love them too much, parents. People who can walk into any room, any setting, any scenario, and they just think to themselves from the bottom of their heart, yeah, I got this. <laughs> you ever anybody like that? I, my oldest son is like this. I don't know where he gets it from. He, we go to this basketball tournament a few weeks ago, man, and we walk in the gym, and I look around, and it immediately becomes clear that we are in trouble. I think to myself, got too many white kids on this team. This is not going to go well. <laughs> Way too many white kids. And it does not go away. Y'all, we got murdered. I'm talking Dream Team versus Angola. Murdered. 61 to 6. 61 to 6. Didn't even think it was possible. So we're walking out of the gym after this game to the car, me and my son. And I'm thinking to myself, Dad needs a drink so bad after what I just, I'm traumatized by what I saw. And he says to me, he's talking about the game, and he goes, well, Dad, we'll get him next time. I, that's what I did when he said it. I'm not proud, but I laughed at my little man right in the face. I said, son, you could have Jesus Christ playing point guard and LeBron on the wing, and you're not beating that team, okay? It is never going to happen. That was the best we could have done, 61 to 6. And without missing a beat, man, he just looks at me, and he goes, no, I think I probably just need to shoot more. I said, shoot more? <laughs> son, I can assure you that was not the problem. Shoot more. 
What Peter exhibits here is the same sort of deal, but it's this irrational spiritual confidence, okay? Because he takes Jesus aside. Just think about this. The dude has walked on water, and you're like, I'm going to need to straighten this guy out real quick, okay? So he takes Jesus aside. He's like, hey, um, gee, let me holler at you real quick, man. Um, some of the people, the people, you know, not me, but other people are saying that um, they don't love some of the stuff you're saying, and they really don't like your tone. And it would be great if you could maybe just be a little bit more positive in your messaging. And Jesus is like, oh, positive. You want something more positive? Well, how about this? Peter, you are a Satan. Get behind me, Satan. Then he calls all his disciples around and he offers them this very iconic teaching on discipleship. Jesus says, man, anybody who wants to follow him has to deny himself and pick up his cross because whoever tries to save his life, control his life, keep his life, will lose it. But the one who loses his life for Jesus' sake will find it. According to Jesus, you can't follow Jesus unless you're first willing to deny your self. And you know, I doubt this ever went over well, but... It's a particularly difficult sell nowadays in the modern world because as we discussed a couple of weeks ago, we modern people, we feel this very deep obligation to discover, express, and care for ourselves. And that's kind of hard to square with this idea that you're supposed to deny yourself. And so what I want to do now is introduce you to three distinct but related and very important concepts that are key to understanding why and how individualism gone wild is a pathology of our age and the greatest threat to Christianity in the modern world. I just put on thing caps for like two minutes. I'll make it very painless, I promise. You'll get coffee if you need to. So the first concept is expressive individualism. Expressive individualism. It was coined by this philosopher named Robert Bella. And while the phrase may be new to you, the basic idea is not because we are all expressive individualists now. Because we all think of ourselves as individuals whose deepest obligation is to understand and then express our unique identity through paying close attention to our inner feelings and intuitions. We are all of us individuals who are on a mission from God to discover and express ourselves. That's what we're here for. Second concept is the culture of authenticity. It was coined by the philosopher Charles Taylor. He's one of my philosophy crushes. And while the phrase may be new to you, the basic idea is not because we are, every last one of us, enamored with this ideal of authenticity. Think about how much we talk about authenticity, this idea that deep down you have an authentic self that only you know. And you have to be true to that authentic self that only you know in order to live a fully authentic life. And what could be worse than not living an authentic life? Third concept is the triumph of the therapeutic it's coined by the sociologist Philip Rife to describe the way in which a therapeutic approach to life has come to dominate the way we think about life. Basic contention is that unlike ancient people who found meaning in more outward-directed activities and authorities, we modern people tend to find meaning in the inward quest for personal psychological happiness, right? The therapeutic has triumphed as a source of meaning for modern people. So <clears throat> in summary, I told you to be quick. Expressive individualism, the culture of authenticity, the triumph of the therapeutic. These are three of the bigger interlocking puzzle pieces that help us to understand these times in which we live. And to again be clear, I mentioned this two weeks ago, these aren't purely negative developments. There's plenty of good in them. However, 
uh, with Jesus' words about self-denial as a condition of faithful discipleship ringing in our ears from Matthew 16, I think we can't help but sense that our apparent ever-increasing interest in ourselves is probably not a purely positive development either. And to Gene Twenge's observation about faith and individualism, I think we would be fools to see that there's obviously some sort of connection, fools to not see that there's obviously some sort of connection between our increasing interest in ourselves and our decreasing interest in God. These things seem to go together. For example, this is fascinating, discovered this last week. Did you know that the profession, that the academic field, that the profession with the highest number of self-reported atheists is, well, you think it would be lawyers, right? But it's not. It's psychology. Psychology. Somewhere a little bit north of 60%, depending on the study that you look at. Now, and this is also why I'm very grateful for the many faithful therapists I know, many of whom go to Vista, because it's not the easiest field to navigate. Also, anecdotally, did you know that the profession with the highest percentage of people who would say they believe in God is? Any guesses? Accounting. Who would have thought? We all thought they were very boring and crooked, but as it turns out, they're very pious. It's a great thing, too. I want an accountant who believes in God. I want an accountant who believes in, like, the fire and brimstone God. You know what I mean? Like the most vicious version of God there is. That's why I want my accountant to believe it. So over the past few weeks, I, I scoured what the Bible has to say about the self. It's really easy. You can jump on any Bible search engine and you can look it up. And what became very immediately clear is that almost everything that the Bible has to say about the self is negative. As in all of it. We're constantly told to what? to deny the self, to control the self, to not love the self, to put off the old self who's most obsessed, defined by being obsessed with the self, and on and on it goes. And so it seems that Scripture sees the self as something that needs to be controlled more than expressed, as something that needs to be denied more than affirmed. All that to say, the Bible is not really big on self-care as we tend to think about it nowadays, right? But, this is really important, but there's gotta be a good reason for this, right? Because we know that nobody loves and cares for ourselves more than God does. Like the whole reason we're here today is because why? Because we believe that God loved ourselves so much that he himself was willing to die so in order for him to take care of us, right? So there's gotta be something going on here. Maybe the best way to think about it is that scripture does teach self-affirmation, self-expression, self-care, all the self-things, but scripture also asserts that Christ-like self-denial is the ultimate form of self-care. Okay, Christ-like self-denial is the ultimate form of self-care. Or to riff on Jesus' words that we just read there in Matthew 16, if you obsess over yourself, then you're gonna lose yourself. But if you lose yourself, then you can really find yourself. And what's really interesting about this is that in all sorts of ways, modern therapy and psychology actually affirm this ancient biblical insight. So for example, there's a very well-documented relationship between self-consciousness and neurosis, okay? Self-consciousness and neurosis. <clears throat> Define our terms here. We, we might call neurosis the tendency to experience negative emotions. And we got some therapists, is that close enough? Okay. The tendency to experience negative emotions. And so um, obviously it's not a lot of fun 
to be a neurotic person who's constantly overwhelmed by negative feelings. And then interestingly enough, one of the strongest causes of neurosis is self-consciousness. Meaning, people who tend to think about themselves a lot also tend to be really unhappy. Right, it's like if you've ever been at, at a party or some sort of social engagement, okay? And for whatever reason, man, you just have one of those days, you know, someone's just going wrong. I don't know, you just have one of those days. And so you're just stuck in your head the whole time. Now you're just thinking about like how you were feeling and how you didn't feel like you were quite fitting in, sinking, that you didn't belong there, you're a little bit anxious, a little bit angsty. Then you're thinking about what everybody's just thinking about, what you're thinking. Everybody knows that I feel like I don't fit in. Everybody's looking, have you ever been that person at that party? And is that party fun for you? Now it's miserable. It's absolutely miserable. Why is it miserable? Well, because obsessive self-consciousness leads to neurosis because it's not good for yourself to be obsessed with yourself. And this is why the key to having a good time at the party is what? It's for you to think about how to help other people have a good time at the party. I'm serious, try this. It's a life hack. Next time you're at a party, you're feeling all and, you know, anxious and anxious and you just don't know what to do, quit sitting there taking your psychological temperature, worrying about how anxious and anxious you are. Get that thermometer out of your you-know-what and go be nice to somebody else. Go talk to them about them. You'll be amazed at what it does for you, okay? Or to use another example, marriage. Dan Lyons wrote this really great book, the subtitle of which is The Power of Keeping Your Mouth Shut in an Endlessly Noisy World. Doesn't that sound great? <laughs> Amen. And he tells this great story about how he and his wife, they, um, and they went to marriage counseling for like a decade. They saw like 20, 25 different therapists. They talked all the things out. You know, maybe you've ever been. All the things get talked about in a decade of marriage counseling. But none of it worked. And the marriage just kept getting worse. And so finally they just, they split up. I'm gonna get a divorce. And they met with one last therapist, not to stay together, but to try to figure out how to be, you know, good divorced parents together. And she suggested that they do something that we might call non-talk therapy. Doesn't that sound great? All the guys in the room are like, oh my God, that sounds phenomenal. <laughs> Sign me up. Do all that you want. Yeah, and the premise, the premise of non-talk therapy was very simple. Instead of endlessly talking out and litigating all of their struggles, they just, they just went and did things that they enjoyed together. They went on hikes, went out for a nice dinner, watched their favorite television shows together. They spent time together with a disciplined rejection of constant self-consciousness with a refusal to constantly take the marriage's temperature. How we doing? How we doing? How you doing? How we doing? How we doing? How we doing? How we doing? And it saved their marriage. They got back together, happily married. Why? How could that happen? Well, because one of the worst ways to be happy in a marriage is to constantly ask yourself whether or not you are happy in your marriage. I have people come in all the time, you know, they're like, I just don't understand it. My spouse, they just won't get in the ring and, 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 and you know, talk all these things out with me. And I've got all these things that we need to work on. And I've told them we've got to work on this, but they won't talk to me about this. And I want to talk about this, but they don't want to talk about this. And I just listen to all this and I think to myself, yeah, I can't believe that doesn't work. <laughs> I don't want to just sit there and listen to you read through your scroll of grievances. What a terrible person. What I really think is you must suck to be married to. In fact... 
The most helpful thing that a lot of us could do to have better marriages is to stop asking yourself all the time, am I happy? And to instead start asking yourself, how can I better love and serve my spouse? You do that first, happiness will come. Maybe. Now, (laughs) no promises here. Now, to be clear, there is a place for checking in with yourself and self-care and all that stuff. There's absolutely a place for all that stuff. But if there is anything at all that has become clear in the modern world, I think it's that the remedy for what ails you is probably not going to be even more focus on you. Like Whatever the remedy is, that ain't it. We've tried that one out. Not working great. Or as this old Scottish pastor once put it, shout out to Nick, our operations pastor. He gave me this quote. For every look at yourself, just make sure you take 10 looks at Christ. And for every look at your marriage, whatever, just make sure you take 10 looks at Christ. It's important to look at yourself, but you can't do that too much, I promise, and Jesus is much more interesting. He's much more fun to look at. For every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. Uh, I, I know that some of this, for various reasons, can be very tough to receive. I really do. I don't love, I don't really even like anything I just said. But I really do think that the results on this are in. And a few things have become really clear. First off, the more focused we are on ourselves, the less focused we tend to be on God. It's just, it's just really clear that that's the way it works. Second, the more focused we are on ourselves, the less humble, whole, and happy we tend to be. Self-consciousness just makes us neurotic. And then third, and most importantly, right, Scripture and the entire witness of church history, right, all the wisdom of Christians throughout the ages, it's really clear on this. you got to deny yourself if you want to follow Jesus. It's not optional. It's not up for debate. you got to deny yourself if you want to follow Jesus. Scripture is very clear that the mission of God, it includes you, absolutely, but it also includes more than you. Scripture is very clear that God is not a supporting character in your life story, but you are a supporting character in God's story. And it's a great role. It's the role you were made for, but you don't get the lead role. You're a creature, not a creator. How could you possibly thrive in that role? Accept your role. It's a good one. And all of this, okay, not because Jesus like doesn't care for you and doesn't want you to care for yourself, but because Jesus does care for you more than you could ever care for yourself. And Jesus knows that your humanity is not denied, but rather it is affirmed in its fullness. When you accept that you are not your own, when you accept that you belong to Christ and you belong to the body of Christ and you belong to your family and your neighbor and your enemy. Don't forget your enemy because that's real freedom. I'm going to keep hitting this note, okay? That's real freedom. Not doing whatever you want, man. That's kids' freedom. That's chump freedom, doing whatever you want. Now, real freedom is accepting what you are, a broken but beautiful and beloved sinner who belongs to a faithful creator and who exists to serve others. You have no greater mission in life because there is no greater mission in life. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Gracious God, thank you for the gift of today. 
We do not deserve to be here. We're here because a good and gracious God has decided to host us for another day. And so we just pause, say thank you, and remind ourselves that we do belong to you. We are the sheep of your pastor, the people of your own choosing, the people of your own making. We come before you today and we confess that, Lord, for all sorts of reasons, some of them good, some of them bad, some of them very complicated, it's easy for us to become very absorbed with ourselves. A lot of us are absorbed with ourselves because we are. We're we're broken and we're hurting. We're traumatized and, and we need help. And that's all real and true. Some of us are absorbed with ourselves just because, well, we kind of suck sometimes. And so wherever we find ourselves, God, that we pray that you would just reach out and remind us that we, we've been called to deny ourselves, not so that we lose ourselves, but so that we can really find ourselves, so we can live the lives we were really made for, which is one of grateful obedience, surrender, mutual submission, and gratitude. So I pray that you work in our hearts in these moments to help us deny ourselves a little bit more so that we might find ourselves a little bit more. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.